Doctrine is the, the next series that we're going to do. We tend to do during the summers topical series that are a little more disciple-y because um, during the summers we find that it gets hot. And, uh, and, and a lot of people leave. And so all kind of the flaky people leave and we're left with this really strong remnant leftover, this, just this faithful few. And, and so that's you. And anyone you know, you know that's not here, they're the flaky ones. And so um, we, we tend to get a little deeper, a little more disciple here in the summers. So we're doing 13 weeks on doctrine, okay? And so here's what I know about doctrine. Everybody loves it. Everybody gets excited about it. All I have to do is say the word doctrine. You go... And so, uh, so really it needs no introduction. So, uh, if you need a Bible, go ahead and slip up your hand. The guys are going to bring you a Bible. If you don't own a Bible, slip up your hand. We'll give it to you. It's yours for free. Keep it. If you do have a Bible and you were too lazy to bring it today, um, then, uh, at the end of service, just repent and, uh, and give it back. Okay. Uh, doctrine is, uh, is not immediately and obviously sexy for most people. And so uh, I want to describe why we are doing a 13-week series on doctrine and, and what we're doing. So uh, I, I know Ricardo told you guys about the study guide, which was unbelievably written and designed, designed by Miss Stephanie Horn down here, uh, written by recently former pastor Eric Dominguez back there. They did a ridiculous job. This is the best study guide we've ever had. It's four times the size of anything we've ever done. Usually we can bind them with staples uh, and now we've got full full on binding. It's like a thousand pages. It's worth a million dollars. But we're selling it for six. So uh, smoke and deal. And, uh, and, and I would really encourage you to get that. Get the doctrine book as well that the series is going to be kind of loosely based on. Um, if for no other reason, um, two things. One, it's good to have resources. Uh, that, that there will not always be people in your life that you can immediately go to and get questions answered. And things like this study guide and that book can be good resources when you get stumped on a, a question. You, you, you have some crisis in your life. You need to know, man, what does the Bible teach about this? Having resources on hand are, are really helpful for for things like that. The bigger reason is, um, from, from a preaching perspective, we've made the decision um, to, to come at this series uh, from kind of from the perspective of so what. So instead of doing 13 weeks worth of proofs of the doctrine of Trinity, doctrine of Scripture, doctrine of the fall, doctrine of covenant, and all those kinds of things, and going, okay, you know, 14 reasons why you should trust the Scriptures, we, we kind of want to ask the question, so what? So when we were preparing this message in our preaching collective, I wrote on the board, Trinity who cares, okay? Because that's the perspective we want to have for this series, because I think that's what a lot of people think, is who cares about the Trinity, and, and, that's, and those are the questions we want to answer. So it's going to be a lot more implication application, um, and, and why should we care about these things rather than proofs. If you want proofs, if I say something you don't understand, go read the book. If I say something you go, oh, I don't know if I agree with that, go read the book. If I say something you go, he's a heretic, find out why I'm not uh, in, in the book, okay? So, um, Go get the book, have that, be ready for it. But, but I do want to take just a second and go, why doctrine? Why, why, do, we, why do we need to do this? Um, I found a quote from A.W. Tozer, Christian writer, um, who said this, is I, I think just sums up why we're doing this series. He says, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Just as her most significant message is what she says about him or leaves unsaid. For her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. She can never escape the self-disclosure of her witness concerning God. 
Okay, so um, there, there's this thing that many of us say um, to kind of distance ourselves from the Christians that make it onto TV for burning stuff, right? And so we go, we're not them. And w- so what we say is, well, we, we're not religious. We, we, we've got a relationship with God, right? I'm in relationship with Jesus. And we love to say that, and it's true for many of us. Um, but what happens a lot of times is we have a relationship with a God that we largely know nothing about. And so um, as an illustration, and I've told you guys this before, some months ago, um, I I wrote a a poem for my wife, and it was in the Song of Solomon series, wrote this poem up, I was really excited about it, came home with flowers and a poem, I I think I was wearing a tux, and I I had a limo, and and I I was on bended knee, like two bended knees, and, 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 I, and I read this poem, and I gave her the flowers, and I handed her a handful of diamonds, and, and I read this poem, and, and the poem, I'm like, baby, I love your, see, I said baby, so I'm already lying. Um, <laughs> I love your long black hair. I love your deep brown eyes. I love how tall you are. My wife's almost as tall as I am. I love how tall you are. And, 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 and I love your, your musical voice. You sing so beautifully and all that, right? And so I sing, do this whole poem, and I'm waiting like, this is going to be good. And she slapped me. I know. <laughs> Everyone who had, oh, has never seen my wife because that, that was a total lie, that whole story. And, and, and from now on, I'm not going to tell you which ones are lies or which ones are true, so you just kind of guess. But my, my, wife, my wife is actually pretty short. She's about mm, somewhere in here and, uh, and, and has blonde hair and blue eyes and, and is almost tone deaf. And so uh, this was... <laughs> Love you, girl. <laughs> And, uh, and so th- this, this poem had nothing to do with my wife. It, it didn't describe her at all. It had nothing to do with her, right? right? So th- this is the equivalent of us saying, I- I'm in a relationship with God, um, but God is this and this and this and this and this, and it's got nothing to do with who God actually is. Okay. So theology, the study of who God is, is simply our way of saying, I want to be in relationship with someone I know. That doesn't seem like such a stretch. If you go to a party and go, hey, this is my friend Jim. He's my best buddy. He's a teacher. And your buddy Bill's going, uh, it's Bill and I'm an engineer. This is weird, okay? Uh, you, you, you are simply not friends with him, okay? So we describe God in all kinds of ways we want to describe him. And I think sometimes God's in heaven going, which God are you talking about? That's not me. That's not who I am. Okay, so there's, there's this idea that theology is for, you know, kind of religious folk and that, you know, it, it, it puts, a, puts a lid on your spiritual experience and you can't really vibrantly love God if you're into theology. And I, I would say you, you simply cannot have relationship with God without theology. And, and the irony of it is every single one of you does theology every day. Over and over and over you do theology. Every time you say something about who God is or what God does or does not do, you're doing theology. So everybody does theology. Many people just do it very badly. But we do theology every day. Okay, so our desire to do this series is to give ourselves some categories and to give ourselves some training and go, hey, we're all doing theology. We might as well do it well. We might as well do it right. Okay, and, and say what it is about God that's true. So some of you will respond by going, well, 
you know, the Bible is really complicated and it's really long and haven't people disagreed about this stuff throughout the centuries? In fact, even this, this Trinity thing we're talking about, you've even said this is the most complicated, the most difficult doctrine for us to get our heads around. So how, how can we get so upset about, you know, is this right or is this right? And we, you know, we get into these arguments. I think there's two things that we have to do. We have to do if... If we are one, faithful Christians who say, I, I am in relationship with God, I, I, I am a Christian, I'm a follower of God, I, I think if we're that person, we have to do these things. And if we are far from God, have no interest in God, are, are atheists, are agnostic, for you to be intellectually honest and walk out these doors at the end of the day still saying, I am rejecting Christianity, you, you have to know what it is you're rejecting. I get people all the time who go, well, I can't believe in Christianity because of all the contradictions in the Bible. Okay, well, let's talk about them. Give me the, give me the first one that's really bothering you. Well, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know them all, right? But this, this guy told me, I'm sure this guy is really intelligent and knows all the contradictions, but just give me one. Okay. It seems like if you want to be intellectually honest at any level, you ought to engage something on its own merits before you decide to reject it. Okay, so, so we pride ourselves on being thinking, aware, really smart people. Let's just do that, okay? So I think if we're faithful Christians or we are willingly disagreeing with, knowingly rejecting Christianity, we need to do two things. One is, don't say more than the Bible says or be more confident than the Bible is clear. Okay, so we get into big trouble when we start to say more than the Bible says, call more things sin than the Bible calls sin, say more things about who God is than the Bible says about who God is. We get into trouble. And we get into real trouble when we are really confident about things that the Bible is vague about. Okay, so there's, there's some things, and, and we would call um, some things in the scriptures close-handed issues and some things open-handed issues. Many of what we would consider to be close-handed, meaning we're not going to, uh, we'll fight about these things. These are important things. Um, these are things that are really clear in scripture. There are other things that, that are somewhat, you know, it's not super clear. I'm not really sure. I think it's this. It seems to be this. My best study leads me to this conclusion, but it's not black and white. And those are the things we would consider to be open-handed issues, okay? So we need to be as confident as the Bible is clear, but no more. On the other side, we need to make sure we say nothing less than the Bible says, nor be any less confident than the Bible is clear. So we, we need to live in the middle of this tension to not overstep what's true, but certainly not understep. And I see a lot more of us doing doing this side where we go, well, I don't want to, I, I don't want to say, I don't want to take a real, it's vague. It's, you know, okay. Some things are, but some things are really, really clear. Some things are really, really, really clear. And we need to be clear where the Bible is clear. We need to be confident where the Bible is clear. Okay. So that's what I want to do. That's where I want to get tonight. So um, let's get to first a definition of Trinity, just so we all know where we're at. Because I think there's a lot of people who are here for the first time. And they're going, Trinity, what is this? this is a matrix thing? I don't understand. So uh, I, I want to get at um, a, a clear definition. I, I want to talk about three common, we'll call them heresies or, or common mistakes, uh, what I think are wrong ways to describe the Trinity. And I want to get at these, even though they're really old, they're, they're also um, presently being taught um, all around us. So 
Definition from the book. I'll just take the book's definition. The Trinity is one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons, Father, Son, Spirit, who are each fully God, fully and equally God, in eternal relationship with each other. Okay, let me read that again. The Trinity is one God, monotheism, one God, who eternally exists as three distinct persons, Father, Son, Spirit, who are each fully and equally God in eternal relation with each other. Now, that succinct definition sentence and any other definition sentence or paragraph um, is the synthesis of three very clear ideas taught in Scripture. Okay, three very clear ideas. So we may synthesize them and it gets complex in our synthesis, but the individual ideas that we are trying to synthesize are actually really clear. So one, God is three persons. God the Father is clearly called God. God the Son is clearly called God. God the Spirit is clearly called God. So we have three distinct persons, Father, Son, Spirit. Number two, each person is fully and equally God. So there is no valuative pecking order in the midst of the Trinity. God the Father is not more God than God the Son or God the Spirit. They are each fully and equally God. And three, there is one God. This is monotheism, not polytheism. There is one God manifesting itself, or excuse me, existing in, we'll get to manifesting in a moment, existing in three persons, okay? So those three things are really clearly taught. How we synthesize them often gets muddy and difficult, and we use bad, uh, bad metaphors like ice and water and, and vapor or eggs or a shack or whatever. So um, <laughs> we'll get there. Three heresies, okay? Three heresies that I want to deal with because they are very common still today and, and, and we're interacting with them on a very regular basis, okay? All of these heresies tend to come from, or, or mistakes, these are, heresy is like a big theological mistake, okay? Um, all of these heresies happen because of an overemphasis of the oneness of God over the threeness or the threeness of God over the oneness, an inability to hold those things in tension and, and going to one side or the other results in these heresies. So the first heresy we'll call modalism. Okay, modalism is still a very commonly taught understanding of the Trinity. Modalism says there is one God, an overemphasis on the oneness. There is one God, and that God manifests itself in, in certain ways at certain times. So in the Old Testament, that one God revealed God's self as the Father. In the New Testament, that God revealed God's self as the Son. And now, God reveals God's self as the Spirit. But it's one God with three faces or three, three manifestations, but only one God. No distinction within them. Okay, and so we've got an entire uh, sect or, or we'll, we'll call, I mean, I think technically it's a cult, but we'll call it a denomination um, of Christianity. Oneness Pentecostalism would essentially be modalistic. Okay, modalistic. Um, and, 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 and now I'll, I'll bring some fire the shack has strong modalistic overtones. Strong modalistic overtones, okay? So if you, if, you, if you understand what modalism is, that essentially the Father, Son, and the Spirit are the same being, same thing, just expressed at different times, you will start to see some pretty strong modalistic overtones in the shack, okay? Number two, 
Arianism, started by a man named Arius. Arian, Arius said that there is one God, God the Father is God, and God the Son was the greatest and best created being. So not quite God, but better than you, okay? Jesus is the first and greatest created being, and the Spirit also is a created being, kind of the, the gopher for God the Father and God the Son, okay? So this is Arianism, which fairly mainstream Christian cult believes in Arianism as their primary Trinitarian doctrine. Jehovah's Witnesses, right, Jehovah's Witnesses. So when they knock on your door and give you the watchtower, just go, you like Arius, don't you? <laughs> and they'll deny it, but they do. Okay, the last one, tritheism. Tritheism misses it on the other side. An overemphasis on the threeness of God to the extent that it rejects the oneness of God. So tritheism, which is just a quick hop, skip, and a jump from polytheism, um, would say that Father, Son, and Spirit are all equally divine, but they are not the same. They are not of the same essence, the same substance. They are individual beings. So God the Father is a God. God the Son is a God. God the Spirit is a God. In fact, God the Father is the supreme heavenly Father, and God the Son is, though divine, submissive to um, and, and lesser than, in, in that sense, than God the Father. Now, um, what really common group of quasi-Christian group that we interact with every day, especially here in Arizona, believes in tritheism? Yes, Mormons. Okay, Mormons do. So the only reason I bring this up and, and get into some of the heresies, even though they're very old, they are still being taught today in kind of quasi-Christian cults or in uh, kind of crappy Christian fiction. So we, we see these things we see these things still commonly being taught, which is the only reason I want to draw attention to it. What we need to be able to do is hold in tension the oneness and the threeness, if that's a word, of God to understand Trinity, okay? So who cares? Why does this matter? Okay, I'm sure there are a hundred different implications of this and reasons why this matters, but there's one in particular that I want to unpack for the rest of our time, and I want to read this to you because I wrote it this week and I, I liked what I wrote, okay? The Trinity is that concept from which all things were created. Because God the Creator exists in Trinity and creates from Trinitarian perspective and values, all of life bears the mark of Trinitarian essence. Therefore, in order for us to understand ourselves, our longings, and the universe around us, we must understand Trinity. Trinitarian relationship is the place from which we were created and the end to which our hearts long and our futures will tend. Because of this, understanding Trinity allows us to understand this world and our place in it. Okay? So, so there are things that happen all around us all the time, every day, just pieces of our human experience that we cannot fully understand or grasp if we don't understand Trinity. And these are not divine things. These are not supernatural things. Take all those out. Just at, at a simply human level, at a natural level, there are huge pieces of our life that we simply cannot make sense of um, unless we look at them through the paradigm of a Trinitarian existence, right? So Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 teach us that we were created bearing the image of God. Therefore, it is one of our primary ends in this world to reflect who God is. So God, being in Trinity, creating from Trinity, 
gives us the mark and, and the, the innate Trinitarian desires and longings within us. In fact, um, Bershears and Driscoll wrote this great opening paragraph to this chapter, and I want to read a little piece of it because it's really good. They say this, deep longings pervade the human heart. We long for selfless, trustworthy, unending love from someone we can trust to be faithful and helpful. We long for unity within the great diversity of humanity, some means by which we can live in peace and oneness that benefits each of us. We long for communication, from face-to-face conversations to the proliferation of modern technology created for the purpose of letting us know others and be known by them and have a seemingly insatiable passion to speak and be spoken to. We long for community, significant and earnest relationships with others so that we are part of a people devoted to something larger and greater than our individual lives. We long for humility, where people pour themselves out unreservedly for the benefit and well-being of others. We long for peace, harmony, and safe altruism for others and ourselves so that abuse, cruelty, misery, and the painful tears they cause could stop. We long for a selfless common good, a world in which everyone does what is best for all and is not so viciously and exclusively devoted to self-interest and tribal concerns. We all long for that. There's not a person in this room who didn't hear something in there. They go, yes, that's what I want. That, that's what I've been missing. Whether it be community or love or peace or relationship or selflessness, there's, there's not anyone in this room who doesn't go, yes, I, I want that. I need that. I wish the world were more like that. Uh, ironically, it, it takes no regenerative work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts for us to want these things. In other words, it, it doesn't, you don't have to be a Christian to want these things. It's innate within us. This is why we look throughout the the annals of history and see most of the great social movements, many of the great marches on Washington and, and the great social upheaval and reform have been led by people who are far from God, who have no desire to be near God because something in us bears this mark. Something in us longs for these things. I've got this friend on Facebook who I've known for a really long time, and I don't know him that well, um, but I, I haven't taken his posts off my feed because um, they're kind of funny. Because he, this guy is an atheist. He is an anarchist, which is just kind of awesome. And, and he, he lives in San Francisco with his, with his uh, girlfriend. He is, as a dude is far away from God, has no desire, no interest in God. But all of his posts are like, pro-worker, pro-union, all of the social justice stuff, fighting against the man. In fact, the irony is the man to him is Whole Foods, which just seems totally backwards. I thought they were against the man. Like, how against the man do you have to be where Whole Foods is the man? That dude hates the man. So, just hilarious. This dude is so far away from God and yet has such a strong sense of justice, has such a strong sense of right and wrong, says that employers should not treat employees this way. They shouldn't do it. It's wrong. They, they, they deserve justice. They shouldn't be fired unjustly. That, that, that he calls upon these great ideas of justice and, and human value and human worth, and yet he is so far from God because there is something in us, something innate that cries out for these things, that longs for these things. 
And you don't have to be a Christian to want these things. This is, this is the world that John Lennon imagined. <laughs> it is. It's a Trinitarian world. There is a reason why pretty much every good song you've ever heard was written by Bob Dylan. Because he was able to tap into something true about this world, something deeply Trinitarian. That's the world. That's the Trinitarian world. Every one of us was made to be humble, submissive, and others-focused, self-sacrificing. We were made for that. We, we know that. We innately know that. We know that in those moments, we've all experienced these moments where we've done something truly sacrificial, where we didn't get any glory for it. Nobody knew about it even. We gave away a chunk of money or we helped somebody. We just did something that was to no gain of our own, helped out somebody else, and you just, you know that feeling of, that was good. We just, no, I don't mean to get all existential on you, but there's just something about those moments where you go, this is how it's supposed to be. We're, we're supposed to live this way. Selfishness is, is a trap. It, it's, it's a snare that we fall into, and we know, we know that feeling when we are selfish and, and are, are grabbing and clinging and taking. We know that that's wrong. We know it innately. This is why even as a culture, we make heroes out of the self-sacrificial. My daughter and I were driving along the 60 and turning onto the 10 east there on that big loop, and there was a sign there on the right, and my daughter goes, Who, who's that, Daddy? And, and I looked up, and it was Pat Tillman. I said, well, that's Pat Tillman. It was just his face and, and the dates of his birth and death, and I didn't know what it was selling or anything. And she goes, well, who's that, Daddy? And I said, well, you know, first and foremost, he was a sun devil, um, but, but he... Um, um, you know, and I'm explaining to her, he went to the NFL, gave up his career to go fight, and he died, and she didn't understand it. She's um, not real bright. And, uh, um, but but I, as I was getting off the freeway later, I thought, you know, uh, our, there's something in our culture, there's something just, just amongst the people in our world that go, that's a hero. He had everything. He had the NFL contract, he had the money, he had the fame, he had the fortune, he had the life, man. And he gave it up for something bigger than himself. The way he told the story was he was so moved by the events of September 11th that he walked away and joined the Army Rangers. He cared. Now, it doesn't matter if you're pro-war, anti-war, you can at least look at that guy and go, I respect that. I disagree with it maybe, but I respect it. That's a hero. He chose to sacrifice something for something bigger than himself, something greater, something others focused. And we look at that. I mean, every story that, every great story that's ever been told has been one of self-sacrifice. Serving the greater good, the greater needs of the world. That's the here. Those are the heroes. Those are who we tell stories about. There's, there's something in us that says, that's right. Well, that something is Trinitarian. That, that has been existing between the Father, Son, and the Spirit for all of eternity past and into eternity future. This willing, self-giving, othering, this, this has been going on, this willing sacrifice, this willing submission, this humility within this community has been happening forever, and we bear the mark of it because we were created by it. We were made to be humble, submissive, and others-focused. We were made to be joyful, which is why everything we ever do is an attempt to be happy. We pursue sex, money, drugs, rock and roll, whatever you got, a, a job that satisfies, what, whatever it is that you want in an attempt to be happy. 
Everything you do is a, is, is a step towards what you perceive to be the thing that will bring you happiness. We've talked about this all the time, that there is an innate desire to be satisfied, to be joyful, to be happy. And that's something that God has put in us. Don't, don't make me quote C.S. Lewis. This, this, is, this is the essence of, of, of that whole idea that God has created in us this need for satisfaction, knowing full well that if we ever fully exploited that desire, we would arrive at the foot of the throne of God. And yet we so often get derailed by lesser joys, lesser happiness, lesser satisfaction, convincing ourselves that this is as much as we can ever have, as much as we will ever get. Sin gets in the way and fools us into thinking that, that this low-level happiness is all we actually need or could ever attain. But God made us to be happy, to be satisfied, to be joyful. God made us for that because the Trinity in and of itself is satisfied, is joyful, is, is in every way happy. It needs nothing. We say foolish things sometimes like God created humanity because it ne- he needed us. He needed to share with us. He needed to love, someone to love. No, he had, he had everything he needed. Father, Son, Spirit, eternally satisfied forever. We were made to be humble. We were made to be joyful. We were made to have true community, which is why we all desperately seek it. And in the 10 years that I have been in full-time ministry, and I'll even extend it to 20 years of being pretty involved in churches. The number one complaint I've heard about churches I've been involved with, not friendly. They weren't welcoming. It was not a great community. People come up and go, this is my first time here, and nobody said hi to me, and no one hugged me, no one, no one even looked at me, and no one, this is the most unfriendly. I wanted community, I wanted relationships, I wanted friends, and nobody said anything to me. Number one complaint every church I've ever been with. You may argue that I'm the common denominator and all that, and maybe that's true, but. (laughs) Do you know what the number one compliment and encouragement is at every church I've ever been involved with? The number one thing people have come and go, oh my gosh, this is the best thing. People come and go, man, the community was just so welcoming. It was so friendly. I walked in and six people hugged me. Three people kissed me. A woman adopted me on my way out. I mean, it was just, they just wrapped their arms around me. They just wanted to be with me. It felt like such a loving community. This, this happened one time where literally a person came up to me and said, oh my gosh, this is the best community. It was so welcoming. They walk away. The next person comes up and goes, I just want you to know this is my first time here. I'm never coming back. Nobody said hi. Nobody. And I'm going, no, come back, come back. Tell this person, right? It, it, because it was one experience at one time, they probably sat in a row with all new people and they were all angry at each other. And, and, and that's, that's just life. But what that tells me is everybody wants community. Everybody seeks relationship. It, it is such, such a part of our innate being to want to be known and to know others, to be in relationship, to be in community. We want that so badly. We, we want it so bad, we're willing to call people that we are connected to only digitally friends. I mean, think about, think about how Facebook has fundamentally redefined the word friend. Think about that. 20 years ago, nobody would have described someone they knew only digitally or connected with only digitally or, or hadn't spoken to in a decade but, but had some connection on the internet. They would never call them friends. They may call them gigabytes. I don't know. I blanked. But, but, they, but they would never call them friends. Facebook has fundamentally redefined friends. They've gone, you, people want friends and relationships so badly 
We'll create this online network of people. So I'll, I'll, I'll run the risk of sounding like the crotchety old guy even at 32, but I, I fear the illusion of community. I fear what technology has done to redefine our, our idea of communication and connectedness. I fear the long-term implications of it, okay? I, I, I fear what technology is doing. Now, I say that fully acknowledging that I wrote up my notes this morning on my iPad, but <laughs> nonetheless, I fear what that is. We were made to be humble. We were made to be joyful. We were made to have true community. We were made to be loving and to be loved. Not emotional, not, not necessarily just romantic love, but be truly loved and to truly love someone else. We were made for that. We long for that. We go from person to person to person looking for that, hoping for that, hoping that that next person will be the one that truly loves me and that I can truly love. It's the reason that half the girls in this room are dating morons right now because, because you long to be loved and you long to love. It's not just the girls, the guys, you're doing the same thing. The point is we long for that, we desire for that, we pay money for the opportunity to find someone to love. I, I, perfect example of this, yesterday, or the day before, my wife comes home um, from a store at, at a mall, and, and she had bought some presents for some friends, and she put the presents on the ottoman, and, and the uh, catalog for the store was there. And uh, so I'm, I'm, I pick up the catalog, and it's got this model on the front and, and, and all her modelness. And uh, she's sitting it, uh, uh, cross-legged uh, on, on a table, kitchen table, with all kinds of hipster trinkets there in front of her. And... Um, and so I'm like, okay, here we go. And I start flipping through it, right? And I'm just, it's, it's ridiculous. And, and the, basically this store, from what I can tell, is a sex store um, that's trying to also tag on some trinkets um, with your desire for love and sex. And one picture was perfect illustration of this. And I, and I come through and I go, ah, perfect. So there was a, a male model, totally shirtless and, and awesome. And, and, and he was in an embrace with that same female model who was on the front and she was wearing just a scarf. And, 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 I, and so the only thing that could possibly be sold by this, by this store was, was the scarf for $80 or something. And, and so I, I turn to that page and I, and I show it to my wife and I say, what are they selling here? And she goes, oh, don't make me do this. And I said, no, you have to do this. You, <laughs> you knew when you married me that this was part of the deal. And, and, and I need an illustration. So um, I said, what are they selling? And she goes, scarf. And I said, don't give me attitude. Uh, I, I, said, I said, what are they selling? And she goes, I don't know, sex, love. Yes, exactly. That's what they're, so th there is a subtle thing. We just talked about this last week. When we see sensual, erotic images, there is something literally physiological that happens in our brain that makes us connect to the people we see in those pictures. And so subtly, that magazine is going, hey, if you buy this scarf, this model will date you. <laughs> and we think, I mean, not, we don't actually think, oh, if I buy the scarf, I think I'd get that guy and he'll want to be my boyfriend. Um, but we go to the store and we kind of look around for him. <laughs> and then we put the scarf on and we kind of go. Mm. <laughs> Model boy, you know, and so. There, there's something subtle there that goes, you, you want to be loved. 
You want, you want to be loved, and that's good. You should want to be loved. You, you want to be sexual. That's good. You should want to be sexual. And yet companies are preying upon us. Everything around us, every movie we watch, every TV show, every advertisement goes, sex, love, sex, love, sex, love, sex, love, our crap, sex, love, sex, love, sex, love. That, that is modern-day marketing. So if you're studying marketing, drop out. That's it. I just taught you everything you need to know. But real love, the love that, that we were built to want, the, the love that is the result of the stamp of the Trinity on our soul, the love that is Trinitarian, the love that is experienced between the Father, Son, and the Spirit, that satisfying, self-giving love, we all long for. We all long for it. Tim Keller um, in his book, The Reason for God, wrote a great section where he talks about, the lo- about love and the Trinity, and so I want to read a little piece of it. Keller says, if there is no God, then everything in and about us is the product of blind, impersonal forces. The experience of love may feel significant, but evolutionary naturalists tell us that it is merely a biochemical state in the brain. But what if there is a God? Does love fare any better? It depends on who you think God is theology. If God is unipersonal, meaning one, not triune, if God is unipersonal, then until God created other beings, there was no love, since love is something that one person has for another. This means that a unipersonal God was power, sovereignty, and greatness from all eternity because God created that in his innate essence, in his being, was power, sovereignty, and greatness, but not love. Love, then, is not the essence of God, nor is it at the heart of the universe. Power is primary. However, if God is triune, then loving relationships in community are the great fountain at the center of reality. When people say God is love, I think they mean that love is extremely important or that God really wants us to love. But in the Christian conception, God really has love as his essence. If he was just one person, he couldn't have been loving for all eternity. Everything about this we long for. We have always longed for this kind of life. Every human has longed for a a, a life filled with peace and harmony and love and community and relationship and all, all these things. It's what we're built for. It's what we've always wanted. It's what all our songs and our books and our movies, all of our art is longing for this or, or rebelling against reality. That this is what everybody wants. And perhaps even though we've longed for it and we've wanted and every human has always wanted, we've never had a word for it. Perhaps we've never cared to have a word for it. But now we do. It's Trinitarian. It's Trinitarian. That that describes this life that we want because it it describes the relationship that God has had within God's self from eternity past and will for all eternity future. Not only does it describe the kind of life that we've always wanted, but I think it describes the kind of God we've always hoped existed. But for us, for humans, the climax of Trinity is in salvation. Fred Sanders said the good news of the gospel is that God opens his Trinitarian life to us. 
Christian salvation comes from the Trinity, happens through the Trinity, and brings us home to the Trinity. The Apostle Paul said in Titus 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That God, eternally satisfied, completely happy, needing or wanting nothing, moved, not out of necessity, but out of love. That God the Father made the plan, God the Son made the sacrifice, God the Holy Spirit seals us, changes us, loves us, guides us. We we are invited into trinitarian life by means of trinitarian love that that's the trinitarian way to explain the gospel that we are invited into this life this trinitarian life the one that we have deeply wanted all of our lives that every human has always wanted forever we are invited into that life by means not of our own righteousness, not by something we've done, not by some great intellectual capacity, but by means of Trinitarian love, sacrificial love. We're invited into the world we've always wanted to be in relationship with the God we've always hoped existed. A God of love, a God of sacrifice, a God of otherness, a God of community, a God of relationship. That's the God. That's why we study Trinity. That's why we do theology, to know that God. Let's pray. God, we are so easily and so often fooled into thinking that to be strong, to be human, is to be independent, to need nothing and to need no one to not expect anything supernatural, but to rely on ourselves, to trust in simply cause and effect. Ironically, what we are invited into is something less than what it means to be human. That as humans, you created us not only physical, but spiritual. Not only independent, but also relational. That love and need for love doesn't make us weak, it makes us human. That a need, a participation in community, a desire for something bigger, something greater, something supernatural doesn't doesn't make us weak, it doesn't make us small, it doesn't make us stupid, it makes us human. It taps into what is most clear about your creation in this world, that there is something more, that this isn't all there is. And so, Lord, I pray that we would never be satisfied with the petty things that that we are offered every day. Those, Those lesser joys, the fractional satisfaction. But, Lord, I I pray that we'd realize that you, the God we've always hoped and believed existed, 
Pray that we would pursue you, pursue the life that you offer us. We thank you, Father, for making the plan. We thank you, Son, for making the sacrifice. We thank you, Spirit, for walking with us, guiding and directing us every day. In Jesus' name, amen.